Welcome to Shop Talk Live, Fine Woodworking Magazine's bi-weekly podcast. I'm senior web producer Ed Pernick, and joining me today are senior editor Matt Kenny. Howdy. And Fine Woodworking Associate Art Director John Tetro. We'll be focusing on John's work using a variety of reclaimed materials, wood, and other stuff later on in the show. Uh, John's work has been very well received by the fine woodworking audience, and he's come up with a lot of creative solutions and techniques using everything from reclaimed barn wood and old leather to copper flashing, copper tacks, small children, and a whole lot more in his woodworking. Um, So uh, with that, uh, if you like the podcast, remember... Spread the word to your fellow woodworkers. Go to our iTunes page. Leave a five-star rating, maybe a comment. Uh, you could even go over to our iHeartRadio page and uh, find us there. He uses the small children to power the wheel that turns the shaft that turns the table saw arbor. That's right, John. How many small children does it take to turn that <laughs> table saw arbor? I only have one so far, so we'll have to see if that does the trick. You might have to make more. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a tough job, John. Um, so uh, I just wanted to point out that we're experimenting with a new sort of format for the show. Um, We're going to have, more often uh, than not, uh, we're going to try and get a different fine woodworking staffer for our third person every week to sort of mix things up a little bit. So John is the guinea pig uh, for this week. And, uh, but you know, things will largely stay the same. But uh, I figured I'd just point that out just to mix things up, keep it a little different uh, from show to show. Um, And, uh, Going further regarding our little normal segue topic, Matt, you have a bone to pick with uh, box makers. Well, I don't know if I have a bone to pick. More of a story of me. Or some creative ideas, too. Me knowing that I was going to put my foot in my mouth and then still agreeing to do it. Yeah, pretty good at at it. So I was teaching uh, in New Jersey recently at the woodworking show. Hold on. Before we go any further, is this going to cause another firestorm (laughs) like the... Perfect storm episode of Shop Dog Live. I don't. I certainly don't think so. Oh, I hope not. Uh, <laughs> no. <clears throat> so I was teaching a class on. It was called Seven Tips for Beautiful Boxes. And uh, at the end of the first class, I taught on this. This guy, you know, I was like, "So, has anybody got any more questions? Whatever, whatever." And the guy's like, "Yeah, hey, yeah, I've got a question." I'm like, "Okay." He says, "So this whole time you've been telling us things that we should do to make beautiful boxes." Is there anything we shouldn't do that we absolutely should never do? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, uh, I mean, I certainly could say a few things here, but I don't want to because it will make me sound like a jerk, and I really don't want to mm-hmm. be a jerk. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, come on, come on, tell us, tell us. And they were all like, yeah, tell us. And I said, all right, here's two things you should never do. One, you should never make a band song box because it's impossible to make them attractive. Okay. All right. Two – you should never Just use lost half our audience. I know. Well, two. You should never use flocking. You should never use flocking. Of those two, flocking is the more egregious sin. This is when you put glue down and then you sprinkle on. Um, A lot of people use paint, evidently, and then they. It's like fake velvet, right? Um, so of course, as soon as I stop saying that, <laughs> this guy in the back is like, "I make bandsaw boxes." And I use flocking. You jerk. And I was like, and I said, I said, look, see, I I told you I cannot win. And also recently I saw some bands on boxes that were very nice. Well, flocking, I mean, as far as I can tell, so the the purpose of flocking, it's often used in like jewelry boxes and and whatnot to, I would assume to keep things from rolling around, right? Dead in the sound, maybe. Dead in the sound, maybe. I don't know why. I don't know why. I don't understand flocking in any, I just don't. See, I, I, I have a similar, um, uh, artistic taste or aversion to flocking and I but I still for some of my boxes I still like to have a soft bottom depending upon what they're going to be used for so yes. I have taken to going to um I don't know if they have these stores all over the country but there's a place in New England called Michaels well, you can get this and product get, a lot of you places you can but yeah. I it's easy to get it at like a craft supply place I get leather yes and um you know it's a, it's a nice you can find leather in all sorts of different colors and it's a nice complement to the tone of the wood um so I've taken to putting leather on the bottoms of some of my boxes on the interior. Bottom. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I uh, always put, I get like a half inch thick open cell foam from a fabric store, which you would normally use to make a seat cushion. Yep. And I wrap it in uh, fabrics. You know, I get fabrics from the, from the, from the store, the fabric store. 
It's a place you get fabric. <laughs> Is that where you from. get fabric? Yes. Uh, and I, I go to Goodwill and I find old shirts mm. and uh, clothing and cut that up to make fabric for the inside. I've used uh, suede on the inside before. I've seen you, incidentally, at, at Goodwill and you're, you're constantly smelling the clothes. I don't know. <laughs> What's up with that? That's a really bizarre thing to say. <laughs> um, uh, because it's true. How did you know? Um, uh, but so I would say instead of using flocking, use some suede instead. Okay. Now, so, but again, you know, it was funny because I told them, I said, as soon as, you know, I'm like, I can't say there's anything You're without being a jerk. I'm going to be, you know. And in the end, it's all, you know, personal taste, really. I'm really, I'm, I'm ready to admit that. Just because I don't like necessarily like bands on boxes doesn't mean you can't make a beautiful one. It's certainly possible. John actually uh, flocks his boxes with ground-up horse hair that was sourced <laughs> from uh, George Washington's original stable back in the uh, late 18th century. How yeah, fascinating. Little-known fact. It's hard to get, but you get it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm only saying that because, John, you have a reputation for, like, just digging up the most random stuff. I, I don't know. Amazing have, stuff, though. It's always cool, but yeah. it's like, what? What? Where did you get this? What? Right. So more on that later, yeah. including uh, my best example of this is a, what, what would you say, John? A 15-foot wide, like, first national bank sign from the side of a bank? We'll, we'll explain this later. Yeah, I think each section is 15 feet. It's probably about, I don't know, 45 feet long or something. Yeah, John has this in his backyard, sort of. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just want to clarify before yeah. we move on. Yeah. Bandsaw boxes, oh, yeah. I'm flexible on. Now, wh- what's your deal with bandsaw boxes? Because they're pretty popular. They are. I, I have seen some that are attractive. I will okay. say that. But by and large, right. I find them extremely unattractive. It has a lot to do with the. To, no, this well, guy, the drunken get- woodworker guy, is going <laughs> to nail you, man. His boxes I, are, are kind of I, I like, but uh, I'm not going to go too far into it because it's just my personal taste. You mm. know that I don't like them, but flocking I am not flexible on at all. I'm get- taking a stand against flocking. Why don't you get down from your fine woodworking ivory tower? <laughs> it's not an ivory tower, jerk. It's I like, think that's why people like flocking, though, because it is flexible. It's so easy to do. Sure. And, yeah. You can put it on like any surface if it's different shape. Right. It comes yes. in lots of colors. I flock all my kitchen utensils. Yeah, it feels <laughs> you, nice. I flock the walls and rooms at my house. <laughs> all right. Let's get – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you out of this segment before you uh, – I put flocking on one end of my bench. Alienate the eight people that listen to <laughs> Shop Talk Live. Um, okay. So – Let's head into our uh, first question. Here's what we're going to do this week. We're going to answer a few questions, and we're going to do one segment, one big, awesome, all-encompassing, reclaimed segment with John Tetro, and then we'll answer a few more questions, and then, you know, whatever. We'll uh, get comfortable. Question one comes from Mike. Mike writes, I use a combination of power tools and hand tools. I see many articles and online discussions regarding the use of plow planes, filister, rabbit planes, but I haven't heard any of you discuss these planes in your shop or use of them. Do any of you own them? And if so, are they useful, or is it more for the hand tool only crowd that doesn't use a router or a table saw? So, good lord! Of course, we don't own any of those tools. Well, I'm sure Mike Pagovich owns like no, six of each. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I do uh, actually. I do own uh, sort of some filister planes. In fact, I wrote an article about them in the magazine. That they, I called them grooving planes because they technically, you know, they don't. Uh, you can't vary the sizes of the groove or anything. They're sort of fixed. But they are filister planes because they mm-hmm. cut grooves. Yeah, uh, I use them occasionally still. Um, they're very efficient and fast and quiet and pleasant to use, fun to use. Um, you like them because you don't have to set up your router table or or yeah, to, or my to table saw in the bottom of a box or something. Right, exactly. Um, so I do. I have two sets of those different sizes, and I and I do enjoy using them, but. You don't. It's not. You don't need to have a rabbit plane or a filister plane to do woodworking. You definitely. Those are those are planes that you buy when you've bought every other plane that mm-hmm. you can conceivably think of. You might actually need, and then you go and buy those planes. It's it's at the far end of the rabbit hole. Okay. Yeah. John, so. you got any funky planes hanging out in your uh, in your uh, barn like no, workshop? No filister planes, but I do have a black rabbit plane that I like. Quite a bit. Use it often. Um, yeah. Mostly for just kind of putting a rabbit on the end of a board that you want to cut joinery in. Mm-hmm. You know, for cutting dovetails um, to get one flat surface in a, a regular shaped board. 
Right. So yeah, you're talking about that's that old uh, trick when you transfer the tails to the pin board. You cut a rabbit on the bottom of the tail board, right? Is that what you're talking about? Yep. To give yes, yourself a little you can, shoulder to yeah. line the two pieces up. Yeah, exactly. exactly. That's a good. That's a good trick that we should sort of um, explain more thoroughly for folks who aren't familiar with it. So, oh. so the the idea here is that uh, you've cut your tails board, right? And you've got all these little tails on the end of a board, and now you've got to hold it atop the end grain of the pin board, and then you've got to scribe all those lines. Well, if you just hold them together, the two boards are going to move around a lot. They can they're prone to sliding around. So if you cut a very shallow rabbit along the inside of the uh, tail board. of the tails. Yeah. Now you've got a little shoulder, and that pin board can go up and, and meet the shoulder. And, and yeah, and you want the rabbit to go from the scribed baseline to the end, to the of, the end board. Yeah. of the joinery. Yeah, yeah. Um, very easy, very uh, very yeah. cool little trick. I also have a block rabbit plane, which I, I, do too. I really love it. Uh, we all three have one. How about that? I use mine. I use mine to trim my uh, my tenons, um, which uh, Matt is going to make fun of me later on in the show for doing. No. When he talks about his uh, mortise and tenoning technique, uh, you're well, going to break out the snark. Don't, nah, don't. Nah. Save it, save well, it. I'll break out the snark regardless. Save but, it, man. But I will say, I mean, uh, to go back, uh, yeah. both tools, filster planes, rabbit planes, are very efficient and in, in good at what they do. The question is whether or not you, and I think this is what he's asking, does he need to have one? Yeah. And no, you don't need to have one of either. You can, especially because it sounded like maybe he, he had power tools to do stuff, right? Isn't that what he said? Yeah, he says I use a combination of power yeah. and hand tools. So, you know, you can cut grooves with a dado set uh, at the table saw, and you can cut rabbits the same way. And if that's what you have already, there's no need to go get a rabbit plane or a filster plane. So if you're choosing between rabbit plane and baby formula. Go with you the rabbit with plane. The, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Always go with the tool. Next question. Um, Your comes- kids eventually move out of the house. <laughs> Next question comes from Benjamin, and I should point out that our first three questions are all kind of similar in nature. We have a little theme going on here. Um, I'm in the process of purchasing a block plane, and I can't decide between a rabbiting block plane or an adjustable mouth block plane. I live in Maine, so I'll be going to Lee Nielsen. My preference is for the rabbiting plane, but I'm concerned with the mouth opening not being as tight as with the adjustable and having issues with things I'd use it for. Example, making chamfers, cleaning end grain, taking a few passes on tenons, etc. Uh, could the rabbiting block plane do everything the adjustable block plane does? Could you explain the limitations of each? Preference, does the mouth opening help control tear out? Um, so, yeah, gentlemen. Well, we all three have a rabbiting block plane. That's mm-hmm. funny. But my recommendation would probably be not to get that. But let's. he asked about the limitations of each. Right. So... Uh, essentially, the, the they each have one, there's each one place where they fail where the other one succeeds. Right. So uh, a standard block plane with the adjustable mouth where that's going to fail you. He mentions specifically tenons. You are not going to be able to trim a tenon all the way into the corner with a standard block plane because right. the blade doesn't go all the way over to the edge of the rabbit. I mean, over to the edge of the body. So that's where it's going to fail you. Um, a rabbiting block plane can do that, but conceivably, the, the, since you can't close the mouth up really tight, on really wild grain or something, you might have trouble, but... But wait a minute. But you're not doing you're face not grain. You're not doing face grain. You're doing it. chamfering, breaking yeah. edges, maybe a little bit of end grain work, right? So yeah. I, the first thing I thought was, he's talking about how does the mouth help control tear out? Well, on a on a smoothing plane, yeah. You're worried about that. But... You don't have to worry about that with a block plane. Yes. It's irrelevant. So now largely. I'm changing my recommendation and going back to what I've always recommended. Get a rabbiting block plane. That's what that's where I'm going too. John has if you one. have money for only one right now. Yeah, I'm I was sitting here trying to think how often I adjust the mouth on my other right. block plane and never. Yeah, never yeah, I think never. I learned putting the blade in maybe. Yeah. I um, use one of those apron planes, the Lee Nielsen, the little bronze apron plane that you use, Matt. Yes. And I, that thing yeah, is that's awesome. Like my favorite tool. I don't need to yeah. adjust the mouth on that. Yeah, my real probably the real recommendation is is if it's if it's possible, what you should do is maybe get the large shoulder plane, a large shoulder plane, mm-hmm. and the apron block plane. Mm-hmm. It's more money, but then you have more tools. Now, why a shoulder a large shoulder plane as opposed to a rabbiting block plane that has a wider iron? Uh, mostly because if I say get a block rabbit plane, mm-hmm. then Mike is going to harass me 
Because Mike thinks you got to get a shoulder plate. Mike's not here. Does his does your fear of Mike extend <laughs> even to situations where he's not present? Mike is always watching. <laughs> John knows that since Mike's his boss, he's always watching. Um, no, yeah, I like the block rabbit plane. So stick it, Mike. Ooh, yeah, I'm taking the block rabbit plane. Um, John. I mean, do you? I, mean, I, I agree. I mean, you can do just about anything with a block rabbit plane that you can do with a regular block plane. So yes. just yeah. get the block rabbit plane if you yeah. can afford one right now. Yeah, I would agree. And it's really handy to have for uh, tenants. Yeah, yep. it's really good for tenants because of how wide the blade is. Okay. So uh, let's move on to our third question. And this comes from Chris. Again, we're on the theme here. Uh, you've answered two of my questions in the past concerning doors and drawers for a kitchen. I took Mike Pekovich's advice and used a deep plow for the doors and thus a long tenon. I also cut them at the table saw with a stacked dado set, as Matt suggested. Worked great. Uh, in the assembling process, I'm dialing in the tenons for a tight fit. I'm using a Stanley 78 plane on the face of the tenons. I know it's a rabbit plane and probably not perfect for this task, but it's working well. The blade is sharpened to 8,000 and the sole is flat. What plane would work better? And would it justify buying another one? Now, before we go into this, since this is a podcast and we don't have pictures here, uh, a Stanley 78, um, it's a rabbit plane. It's got almost like a saw handle yeah. um, on it. It's a very specific looking. Yeah, it's a fairly common plane at flea markets and, and, and wherever, you know. Yeah. But um, Record used to make one. I think a knot makes one now. Uh, and Stanley, of course, made them, but doesn't anymore. Uh, of course, I'm not going to tell you not to buy another tool. Uh, I, will ne- I would never tell someone that. <laughs> well, can I point out the obvious here? But well, he, okay, you point out, and, and then and then you guys can go into harass it in detail. you and mock you. Well, no, it's just that he kind of he kind of answered his own question. Yes, he does. when he says, you know, it works great. Yeah, it's like well, then, then why you are you considering another else. tool? Yeah. There's not gonna, there's not going to be anything that works any better. Um, Will Neptune, who's a fantastic furniture maker, uses a rabbit plane like yours, like this guy's, to trim tenons. I know Pekovich has done it some as well, and he likes it. Uh, so there's no need to get another hand plane. But it, I remember I was at Lee Nielsen two summers ago. At the, I took my dad there to see the factory tour, and this guy was there, and he recognized me, and he said, you know, I, I want to get this. Uh, he wanted to get a low-angle bevel-up jack plane, you know. And he's like, I want to get this, but my son tells me I should just buy a used one. And all the, and he's like, I, so what could I tell him to justify getting it? And I said, well, do you want it? And he said, yes. And I said, and can you afford it? And he said, yes. What do you care what your son thinks? That's all you need. <laughs> but here, you don't need another. I mean, if it's working great, you don't need it. I have, a, I have another issue with what this gentleman is doing, though. Yeah. Should I go into okay, that? Okay, this is what, okay, this yeah. is what you were going to ding me on. Right. And it's now, a fair point. Yeah, so... I, you're making a whole kitchen's worth of doors, right? And I've done this, and I know Mike has done this. Um, get some scrap stock. While, you know, just make up some extra scrap style or you know rail uh, material. Same thickness. Same thickness and everything. Same width. And when you're setting up your dado set to cut those tenons, set it up on a test piece and just dial it in to where you don't have to fit the tenons at all. Yeah. And that's what I did. And because if you're talking like 20 doors, can right. you imagine fitting the tenons? That's four. That's, that's 80 four, tenons. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Your, your door should only have four tenons. That's you know? that's 80 tenons, which means 160 faces. Yes. That's a lot <laughs> of trimmings. And when you can get a perfect fit off a dado set. Yeah. So for uh, a kitchen cabinet door, that's absolutely what I would be doing. So save that rabbit plane for your fine furniture. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. I know that I've seen I mean I mean Tim Rousseau uh Thank you, John. I, I've done a lot of videos with Tim Rousseau before and Rousseau does that. He does a lot of his tenons on the router table using yeah. a big morti- like a wide diameter mortising bit kind right. of thing on a the round, straight bit. A straight, you know. Yeah. And um he does the same thing. He basically dials it in and his test is very simple. He's got the mortise piece and then he's got the tenon piece. He fits the two and then he lifts the whole assembly up and as long as that mortise piece doesn't Fall fall, fall out on its right. own. He knows. Okay, it's dialed in perfect, and that's it. Done. Yes, yeah, yeah. That's what you want. You want your tenon to go in smoothly, but then when you pick it up by the tenon piece or the mortise piece, you don't want the other one to fall out, fall off the joint. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think 
this this goes to so um, woodworkers. It's the same as with people uh, that have this fascination with cameras and photography. Um, you know, woodworkers always like to get another tool, another cool tool, another cool tool, because they always think it's going to make something work better just yes. because they have a different tool. And it's right. like this guy answered his own question. He's like, yeah, my system works great, but could I get something that yeah. makes it work better? But we all mm -hmm. have it. It's called gas. And you say, I've got gas. Gear acquisition syndrome. Nice. Yes. Gas. I've got gas. You've right. got gas? Yes. John, do you have gas? <laughs> yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> gear? I'm writing this down. Yeah, gear acquisition. You've never heard that before? No. Yeah. What? This is not a, uh, a Matt Kennyism? No, it's not. I can't take, Interesting. take credit for that. Interesting. No. Well, I've got... Uh, actually, I wouldn't say my gas is too bad. Right. It's not that bad. I've come to the sad point in my <laughs> career where I kind of have every tool I need. It's kind of been bumming me out because I'm like, what else can I buy? Well, it's 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 hard because when you uh, yeah. um, you can never have too much lumber. I, I I realized I was in my basement the other day. You know, I've said it before on the podcast, and I'm still in the process of building my basement shop. But I was in the basement the other day, like having one of those moments where it was like I was looking around. I was like, yeah, bandsaw, yeah, planer, <laughs> looking good, baby. Yeah, joiner, got that. Keep on keeping on. All right. Drill press, mm, mm -hmm. sweet. <laughs> and I and it's funny because I kind of was pondering the fact that it's like I don't need anything else. I got everything I need. But yeah. then when I'm at work, you're like, and Ugh. some new tools come in to be reviewed or something. I'm just like, oh yeah, yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, I don't have a 16 inch joiner. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> killing me. I know. I did get. Did I? Did I mention? I don't remember if I mentioned on the last podcast that I bought a uh, a used eight inch joiner. Oh, I knew. I don't know if you mentioned on the podcast, but I knew that. I um, I got a I, I got a nice email. Uh, from somebody that a lot of people in the audience would probably know, uh, Diami over at Modern Woodworkers Association, he had heard me complaining about the fact that, that was the last, you know, big piece of machinery I required, and uh, I just couldn't come up with the cash for a, you know, a decent eight-inch joiner. And um, he had one; he had upgraded, and he had one that he had bought used. I don't know, a couple, just a couple years ago, and he had gotten a good deal on it. He said, "Listen, um, if you know, I, I could use the money to, you know, help pay for my new tool, so I'll." give it to you for the same amount I got it for. So I got this great new, it's a 50s era Rockwell Delta. It's a great yeah. joiner. For awesome. A really good price. Yeah, I get it. He was, yeah. really, he was really kind. We went out there, me and a buddy and a buddy's pickup. Um, and uh, we went out there and got some lunch and brought back a joiner. Yeah. Sweet. But I do realize that, you know, yeah, I've got a table saw and a joiner, but within the next couple of years, I'm going to get a saw stop when my son is old mm. enough to use the table saw he'll be about he'll be four in two years and yeah. i think that's old enough for the table saw um <laughs> four. Uh, then I'm gonna, I'm gonna i'm gonna need a new planer i got a you know a bench top planer and i'm definitely gonna go for a uh oh, you want to you know uh, something with an induction motor and with a segmented cutter head which will yeah. reduce the noise tremendously yeah. over the hellion that i have now in my shop well you have the the dewalt yeah. The DW735, right? Yes. Which is a great planer. It's also known as the uh, Boeing 735 yeah. because it is... It's it's loud, but that's yeah. a good that's a good a planer for yeah. the money. That's it's a great, great planer. planer. Great planer. Um, so uh, let's put John, poor John, in yeah. the hot seat. John's been silently nodding to a lot of the stuff we've said. <laughs> yeah, I'm but, not saying too much, but yeah. I'm nodding a lot. Forgetting that he's on radio. John's a quiet <laughs> man by nature, I, I feel. Um, it's like when I do videos and I forget to move her and then uh, move and our, and our videographer Gary says, Matt, we're making motion pictures. <laughs> so it's like you got to move. <laughs> uh, so, John, you, um, you're known around here for working with uh, a lot of reclaimed lumber and you penned an article, I don't know, like three or four issues ago. On working, you were on the. You were a cover boy. That's right. Is it? It was only three or four issues ago. Maybe it was. Yeah, was it more? It was a while ago. Now was yeah. it, it, it was a while ago. Like a December issue, I think. Because okay. it was edited by an editor that's no longer with us. Is that yeah, right? Is that right? That's not a good sign. I probably shouldn't write anything else. <laughs> <laughs> you work with John, you get fired. <laughs> um, so you um, give us, and you you've come up with a lot of really neat. Um, techniques. Uh, you use a lot of copper and a lot of leather, and a lot of your blogs have gotten a lot of traction because people, I, I guess, I think people just really enjoy the creativity you have, the yeah. affinity you have for repurposing objects. It's cool. It's cool. So take yeah. us, take set the scene first for folks who don't know you, never heard of you. Um, where are you getting all your reclaimed lumber and, and your bits and bobs that you incorporate in all to, in, into all your work? What's mm. the deal? Okay, how far back we got to go? 
or do you want to go? Tell us about the pile, John. <laughs> the pile. Um, well, I, it all started with uh, my dad being an antique dealer. Uh, as I grew up, I did a lot of uh, helping him out with auctions, you know, holding pieces up and bringing them to the buyers, loading trucks, you know, doing the Brimfield flea markets, um, traveling all up and down the, the East Coast. And it's actually a great childhood. It's a lot of fun. But um, as I got older and started having an interest in making things, I always was interested in art, you know, drawing in grade school, high school. John is a fantastic artist. A wonder. He, a lot of his drawings end up in the magazine. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, no problem, John. <laughs> so, um, you know, when I started uh, building things, uh, it was just natural to go to my dad for the supplies. So, you know, he'd be taking down an old barn or, you know, cleaning out an old uh, factory, all uh, architectural pieces and stuff like that out of the out of the factory. So a lot of that is good old growth wood. Um, like old and fir and, and, and old pine. and Yeah, yellow pine, nice, you know, super tight grain. Um, what, what kind of pine? Yellow pine. I've never, I've heard it. Down south we have something called yellow pine, but I've never <laughs> heard of yellow pine. Yeah, it's something different. It's something different. And there's, yeah. then there's yeller pine. <laughs> yeller. Um, that, that one you always have to put down at the end. Yeah. All right, sorry. Chestnut, that's another Chestnut, favorite. Yeah, that's yeah. one of your, that is your favorite, isn't it? Chestnut? It is, yeah. yeah. I, I'm smiling right now if you can't see me. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I would, I would get ideas from, from these certain pieces of wood that my dad would be, you know, about to sell, but luckily I'd kind of get the first, first dibs on it. Um, so that's kind of how I got started. I'd really like the creative part of, you know, looking at the piece and then getting an idea of what it could be. And your family so, has accrued a massive stockpile on your family property in Massachusetts of yeah. just random like stuff like that bank sign I mentioned earlier. <laughs> yep. Right. Yeah, that came from Hadley, Mass. I think it says like Hadley First National Trust or something. Solid cast iron Crazy. storefront. Wow. Or bank front. Yeah, cast it's, iron. It's yeah. cast iron. It's all in sections. It's never going anywhere, is it? Because it must weigh a ton. Well. I, yeah, probably each piece is yeah, a thousand pounds at least. Yeah, um, yeah, because that's another thing I, I know about this uh, your your secret acreage that you have. Uh, it's chock full of great, not just wood, but uh, like sort of old industrial items like lathe yeah. stands or old cabinets or pieces of marble. Yeah. Just uh, whole, random stuff, right? Which is why you come up with such great stuff like yeah. your uh, your uh, what did, what did you call it? The media cabinet you made with had the uh, motherboards. Yeah, I'm not now, positive yeah. what those came from, but some kind of computer boards yeah, that, that were used, used as the panels. Yeah, and the uh, frame and panel door, and the yep. panel was these computer boards. Yeah. Right? Now, when really you cool. – uh, so let's let's go into some of the techniques you use with reclaimed lumber. So one of them, uh, I've seen you sort of attack the face of the board with a wire brush, mm-hmm. um, and you're, you're sort of burnishing it, and you're leaving the surface rough so the, the grain is sort of all raised – and it's very tactile. Yeah, I like to get it, you know, workable and clean, um, especially if you're going to use it in your house and put, you know, a glass on it or something. Mm-hmm. But leave as much of the patina and the character as you can. So, you know, not alter it at all if possible and just clean it. So there's different right. ways. Wire brush is good. Um, a softer wire brush, you know, steel sometimes will chew it up mm-hmm. a little bit too much. So like a brass mm-hmm. or even a you know, plastic bristle, bristle brush. Like your wife's toothbrush? Yeah, but I've, <laughs> I have used a couple things from the kitchen, and then they get designated for shop use only after that, and I have to buy another one <laughs> for the kitchen. Um, now, this this raises a big red flag. So if you're, if you're not doing it, like typically folks get, you know, old reclaimed lumber, and then they clean it up, and then they resurface it, and then boom, they've got well, square, what, flat I, lumber, but you're mm-hmm. not doing that. A lot of well, times. I do that too. Sometimes, yeah. But, but I I like to keep as much texture as I can. I, I think that's. How do you um, cut joinery without square reference surfaces, though? Well, that little rabbit block plane trick that we were talking about—that's that's a big one. So just you just a you flat get surface. On, a flat surface on the inside face of the tailboard, for example, is enough to yep. then. And as long as that ingrain on the pin board is straight and square, 
you can get a, a tight joint out of that. Is that yep. right? Yeah, you yeah. put it well. You actually put a rabbit on both boards, the pin, uh, the uh, pin, and the tailboard. That's true because the, yeah, that's you would need that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and so, it's not much either. It's just enough to get whatever that you know undulating surface is off. It could be like a thirty-second or a sixteenth, depending on what the mm-hmm. what you, the face looks th- like. That's what you do anywhere you have a joint, right? So if you're doing, if you're going to do a dado joint, you would uh, make it have a bit of a shoulder and. Yep. So there'd be a uh, the the shoulder would be clean and straight, and then you'd have your dado in there. Yep, exactly. And then the the piece going into it would also have a, a shoulder on it, so you'd get nice square surfaces at the joint, but without ruining the the patina and the and the in the worn look of the wood. Yep, all yeah. the all the joinery's hidden as you know as much as you can. Right. And you're you're also big into copper. You're a copper guy. Yeah, I think. One probably biggest reason is color. I just love the color of like the old green patina. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also just really friendly to work with. You know, you can cut it with tin snips and you can hand hammer it and bend it around stuff. Um, so, yeah, just it's an easy thing to work into uh, woodworking. Yeah. Interesting. What, now, what are you working on right now? Uh, I usually have a list of half a dozen things. Um <laughs> Right now you have a four-month-old. That's the big thing, right? Yeah, that's <laughs> all I want to do right now, just snuggle right. her. Yeah. Um, specifically with copper, is that what you're asking? No, in general. Like, what um, kind of projects are you working on now? Timber frame, lumber storage. Okay. Kind of small bank barn, I guess. That's kind of something I'm getting going for yeah. spring. Yeah, you've been working on the uh, – John has this really cool uh, – he needed a place to store all of his lumber. And you, so you kind of dug out part of a hill. And then you built up a foundation with with basically field stones from your yard. Yep. And then now you're going to build a two-story timber frame structure on top of that yep. uh, to store all your lumber in. Recycled beams, too. Recycled beams, yep. Some yeah. from a barn down the street that a neighbor of mine was burning as I drove by in horror one day. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> um, and some from Craigslist, a couple here and there, you know. Yeah. It's, it's, if, if listeners from other parts of the country might not know that in New England in particular – there are lots of old timber frame structures around, houses, barns, and uh, people want to get rid of them because they're going to put up something new. But you can find them on Craigslist, on eBay, yeah. uh, in the classified ads. And, yeah. uh, but you're not necessarily are – you, are you able to get a good deal on reclaimed lumber that way nowadays? Because I feel like a lot of, a lot of property owners, they're, they're kind of hip to the fact that, hey, I can get some money for this stuff. Yeah, I mean, it depends. I would never want to use a frame that could be put back up whole. You know, Mm -hmm. if it's a timber frame that can be taken down and reused, that's ideal. Um, But in this case, you know, it was uh, was half knocked down because it was rotten. You know, a lot of it was had too much rot to to, uh, save the whole frame. Um, And the rest of it was being burned. So that was ideal. You know, it's like I was – I did actually end up trading him some things, even though he didn't want any payment. But Mm – yeah, it depends where you get it. Because if you buy it from a dealer that's already taken the time to find it, you know, take it down, mm-hmm. clean it, stock it, um, they have time into it and they have labor into it. So, have you ever been driving past a, a dilapidated barn and just pulled over and somebody that you don't know just pull oh, yeah. over, and knock that's, on a door, like, hey, that's how I find most of the lumber I get now. Yep. And how does that how does that play out usually? Do you make an offer or do you say, hey, how much do you want for a couple of beams? Um. Either. Yeah. Um, it depends if it's something they already thought about that they might want to get rid of. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because yeah. there's, a, there's a place, there's a dilapidated barn on my drive home from from work. And I, I, uh, I often wonder about just knocking you, on the doors all yeah, around, finding can, who the heck It can be a little been. dangerous. So when you stop, make sure you're carrying a shotgun when you get out of the car. I'm <laughs> <laughs> here in New England. <laughs> what are you doing on my land, boy? You got to watch out for dogs, too. That's the other right. thing. So interesting. I've done, uh, John, I bought some chestnut from John mm-hmm. to uh, make a dining table for a couple uh, here in Connecticut. And uh, I used that chestnut. And one of the things that I, it's a beautiful wood, and I like the way it worked. Uh, one of the things I didn't like about working with reclaimed lumber was all the time I had to spend uh, denailing and demetalling it uh, mm-hmm. before I could begin to mill it. Um, uh, mill it up. That was uh, a very time-consuming thing. Now, now, what's the deal? Why is chestnut so wonderful to work? And and uh, what happened to chestnut in North America? Uh, John probably can speak better to yeah, this John? than me. Well, I, 
I don't know how much I know about it, but it's um, a blight that came from Asia, I guess. And um, it was like turn of the centuries when it started, I want to say. Yeah, I'm not positive, but I think pretty much every alive chestnut tree um, was dead by like the the early 40s, late yeah. 30s. Does that sound right? Right. I'm not sure, but I know there are a few stands left that were isolated enough that they didn't get the infestation. And I know there's one in Georgia. Hmm. I think North Georgia, there's a stand of uh, chestnut trees. And there are a few, I guess there are probably some still bumping around, just like yeah. there's still elm trees around. Yeah, even isolated though, areas. Yeah. yeah. but um, And they are working on, like, combining it with other, um, you know, like a Chinese chestnut or a mm-hmm. Japanese chestnut, making a hybrid. They're working, in, in, they're working to combine it with Godzilla. <laughs> so they're going to have a... <laughs> have a furry wood. So typically, <laughs> typically the chestnut that you find, at least in New England, is coming out of uh, barn beams and yeah. uh, flooring. It's yep. pretty common to find really ridiculously wide... Yeah, yeah. Um, planks and flooring. I mean, I'm talking like over, well over a foot wide. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you don't find it used for furniture all that much, you know, when you find older chestnut, just because it was kind of a structural, it was an ideal structural wood because it was, it's really strong for how heavy it is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's comparable. Oak is probably stronger, but it's not as heavy. It's as so oak. much heavier. Yeah, no, the, he- oak, the oak. The is oak so is much heavier. heavier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and the re- the rot resistance is great. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's another reason they used it for. For our beams and uh, it reminds me a little bit of uh, Walnuts Country Cousin. What's that stuff called um, again? Butternut. Butternut. Right. <laughs> Walnuts Country. Yeah, cousin. the grain. The grain's really similar. Yeah, that's what it, that's what it was called in an article Garrett Hack wrote once about five unknown woods, mm-hmm. and it was like chestnut, Walnuts Country Cousin. So. And another great headline we were talking about when we were working on on uh, getting ready for the show today was um, ebony. Ebony. The Dark Knight of Details. Right, right. I'm not going to ding whoever came up with that headline, but I always found it kind of funny. Uh, uh, so, well, let's, let's move on to another question. All right. Uh, Jed wrote, love the show. Can you please discuss the difference between a riving knife and a splitter? What are the benefits or drawbacks of each? So we're talking table saws. Table riving saws. knife versus splitter. That's mano right. a mano. Right. Well, this is hands down. Riving knife wins, hands down. Yeah. Yep. So the difference, yeah, the difference between them is that, uh, well, let's start with a riving knife because that's probably easier to explain. And then then you can explain what a splitter is by its deficiencies in relation to it. But uh, so a riving knife is something that uh, it's attached to the mechanism that the arbor's on, essentially, whether, you know, some part of the, the, the whole uh, arbor Yoke it's mechanism. integrated it's into integrated the arbor and, and bracket or whatever. Right. Basically what it does, it sits behind the blade. You can adjust its height so it's just beneath the top, the apex of the circle of the, of the, the, blade. Uh, of the blade. And then it moves in concert with the blade. So if the blade lowers, it also lowers. And if the blade tilts, it also tilts. So you can always leave a riving knife in place for any type of cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, non-through cuts, through cuts, bevel cuts, anything. You can have the riving knife there. And it also sits very closely behind the blade. And so what that means is as soon as your board comes off the back of the blade and it's got this kerf, and when it, what causes uh, kickback is when that kerf closes up and sort of pinches the blade and it'll get thrown by the board, I mean by the blade. Well, because the riving knife is right behind the blade, there's never a chance can't really pinch. it can't pinch because it's already as soon as it comes off it hits the riving knife essentially, and so uh, that's what makes a riving knife so fantastic is that you can always have it in place and it's right behind the blade mm-hmm. so it essentially eliminates kickback. I won't say it's a hundred percent eliminates but it essentially eliminates kickback. Mm-hmm. A splitter is a very 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 poor imitation of a riving knife. They uh, do not raise and lower with the blade, but they do tilt with the blade. So if you think about the blade as a circle, when it's at its full height, the splitter might be fairly close to it. But as it lowers, the blade gets further and further away from the splitter. So there's more and more opportunity for a board to pinch the blade before it gets to the splitter and cause problems. It also means you have to take it off to do non-through cuts. A splitter is not a panacea for kickback. Riving knife is close. Yes. It's close. 
right? Riving knife is. I wonder if you could still have a bit of kickback with a riving knife. I don't want to find out, but it's, I'm going to try that when we get back and we finish the show. I'm going to see if I can. Yeah. Bad idea. Bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but they try really hard. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so that's the difference. And then the other thing is, uh, in the United States, riving knives are fairly new. Yeah. Well, I should say this: a long time ago, when we were making, still making table saws in the United States, you know, like Yates American and all these companies, there were riving knives on table saws back then. Mm. They disappeared, and they've come back in the last ten, within the last ten years. Uh, I think the Powermatic two thousand was the first new saw I remember having one, and that came out around 2000, I think. Um, but you can't, without huge engineering, feats of engineering, you cannot retrofit an old saw right. that has a splitter there are to folks have that a riving have knife. Tried, there are companies that have tried to do it, but it, it always seems that the products fall very short or they're a little dangerous. Or I know we've looked at a couple of um, sort of add-on aftermarket deals. Aftermarket There's systems. one aftermarket system that I know of uh general when they when they they offered a whole new motor mount system right that inco- but that means you had to change out it was yeah, like six hundred dollars that's not really a, a, a an, an effective thing to do uh so if you really want a riving knife you've basically got to get a new saw right yeah okay well but for um if you have an old saw and you at least want to mitigate uh the potential for kickback with uh, straight cuts i mean you can always do the old trick of the um you know, you've got a wooden throat plate insert, and you put yeah. a little splitter right behind the the blade, and at least yes. for most of your ripping, that'll give you a little bit of yeah, little bit of. Uh, what, what I used safety. to do was I would have different inserts for different blade heights, yeah. and that way I could always have that wooden splitter up close behind the blade. Yep. You could also there's a little thing called a micro splitter, mm-hmm. uh, and you could that a lot of people like. Um, but the best thing, I mean, it's ideal that you have your splitter in uh, or something like a splitter in or a riving knife. Okay. Yeah. Or you use your bandsaw a lot more. Use your bandsaw ah, a lot more. Ah, now that's a very good point because there are some folks who argue that uh, your first machinery purchase should not be a table saw. But a bandsaw. It should be a bandsaw. I, I would agree with that, I think. Yeah. I love my bandsaw. The thing is, yeah, when you're ripping, you should – I would never rip – uh, a board down the middle of the board. Mm-hmm. That's asking for trouble. Because you're releasing a lot of tension. You, could, you are potentially releasing a lot of internal tension. So if I'm going to rip a significant amount of wood off a board, bandsaw. Yeah. You bandsaw first, and then you can clean up that edge Yes, with at the table saw with a yeah. very – taking off just a bit. Like maybe your, your part is a quarter to an inch uh, too wide, and then you go over to the table saw. Yeah. Yeah. That's okay. that's the most that's the best way to do it. Uh, well, let's move on to a question from George. And George writes: Sanding between coats of finish on a nice flat surface is pretty straightforward. But what do you do with something like a panel inside of a frame or any other place where there's an edge? Uh, the only thing I've seen is to pre-finish the panel. Okay, but then how do you finish the rails and styles where it meets the panel? It's impossible to finish the frame without getting some on the panel, or to sand the edge where the frame meets the panel without sanding the panel too. And if you can't pre-finish the panel, how do you sand all the way up to the edge? Um, do, do, is everyone sand between their coats of paint? Uh, coats of uh, – well, if they're doing like uh, – <laughs> It's a joke. Yeah, okay. Sorry. I, I thought it was funny. John's you're, laughing you're quietly. You're mean. <laughs> I'm snickering. Um, go ahead, gentlemen. Gentlemen. I, I think a good little trick um, would be just to put some spray adhesive on the bottom of a wood block and just glue your – sandpaper to that mm-hmm. then you can cut it flush and then you can sand up to right up to any corner yeah. or edge yes. yeah. yeah and you could then turn it 90 degrees and sand the inside edge we're assuming that this guy's talking about sanding between the coats of the finish sure like if you're doing poly you know and you're right. hitting it with 320 or something between coats because all your surface prep sanding should be done right. before you yeah no this is assembly. what he, that's exactly what he's yeah. getting at yeah. yeah uh i mean the other solution is um, to completely pre-finish yeah. before you glue it up. And that means to pre-finish the rails and styles too and just tape off uh, the sections that get glue on them yeah. and so that you keep the finish off of it. And the nice thing about that is that when you glue it up, if you get like a tiny little bit of squeeze out just, somewhere, you know it's not going to stick yeah, just comes yeah. right off. to your finish. It's going to come yeah. right off. When it starts to gel up, you just yes. take it right off. Yeah, spray, um, but spray paint is a, you know, cures all these problems. Spray paint. Spray paint. Spray paint. You're going to get a spray milk paint. 
uh, Matt, I'm going to pot you down and uh, <laughs> ask you to please step out of the studio. Yeah, please leave now. <laughs> John and I will take things from here. Uh, okay. So the next thing comes from John, all the way from New Zealand, I might add. John writes, Hi, guys. Thanks again for the great podcast. My question, when doing mortise and tenon joints, it's obviously important to get the tenons uh, a dead snug fit in the mortise. But do you also get them snug in the width dimension as well? Or do you leave a little space for fine adjustment sideways when gluing up and also to allow for some wood movement along the width of the tenon? So he's talking about how, you know, cheek to cheek, you want to get a snug fit. But what about that long edge to long edge? Uh, do you want that fitting to either end, either mortise wall on either end? Uh, or do you want to leave a little room in case that thing expands when it, it summertime hits? Well, I think it depends on the width of the tenon. Okay. You know, narrower tenons, maybe an inch wide or inch and a half wide, you maybe don't have to worry about that too much. You can get it really snug, pretty snug. But I generally do leave a little bit of space for seasonal movement uh, and also just for somewhere the glue to go. Right. A little bit of space, you know, not too much. But, you know, uh, wider tenons, uh, the wider the board that has the tenons on it, the more you need to take this into account because wider boards, especially uh, plain sawn boards, move uh, more in their width than narrower boards do. So like the side of a low boy, for example, which might be have several tenons going right. into a leg, you would need to make uh, an, sure, take that to expand. That's yeah. going to move a lot. And usually you want it to move downwards away from it's the like top. Slab, it's almost like slab construction. You've got this huge slab that's going to go in the summer and expand. Yes, that is, is the sound for expansion, It is, by the way. What's the sound for the contraction? Okay. That was um, the, that was a sound for glue squeeze out earlier. <laughs> That's right. I don't know. There's subtle variations, John. All right. This is so um, But, uh, you know, it's funny because if you – I know early on when I started building furniture, there were situations where I, I dialed in a really snug fit for my mortise and tenon, like perfect. And I dry fit it and I was like, yeah, that is perfect. And the minute you put glue on and tried to put it together – doesn't go in. Forget it. It's not going to happen. And I, yeah. I, some of that might be that maybe the tenon, like – when it got the moist glue on it, it, it swelled, swelled a tiny up. bit. It does swell a little bit. It but does, I yeah. think also, though, there's no room because the glue. There's nowhere for that glue to go, and I think you're you're trying to as you as you fit the tenon into the mortise, and it's like it's like a hermetic seal. <laughs> it's like you, now you've got like this pocket of air that can't escape the mortise. I don't yeah. I don't know if that's baloney or not, but that's the feeling I would get. Um, it's uh, but that's true. That's an example of a tenon being too tight. Yeah, if you have to really force the tenon in there, it's too tight. Yeah. Um, is there anything else to add to this? Uh, Should we get, I mean, maybe some specific You know, guidelines? another thing that I sometimes I do for my tenons to, again, it's it's more about giving glue a space to go. Um, sometimes I round over the the uh, the edges of them. Mm -hmm. Just, just yeah. a tiny little bit, not a lot. Yeah, a tiny little chamfer on the end, yeah. too, helps it go in a little better. Well, one, what I do for glue space is uh, when I'm mortising, I just mortise maybe an eighth of an inch deeper than the tenon is long. Mm -hmm. And then it gives somewhere for glue to pull up at the bottom. But also that, that thickness and the width, you need to take a little bit off just to make it easier for it to go in, you know? Yeah. Like we said earlier, your tenon should go in easily. You shouldn't be using a mallet to bang it home. But when you pick it up, it shouldn't fall apart either. Right. So you just take one extra swipe with that rabbit block plane. That's right, with that rabbit block plane. Right, or just, with your Stanley number 78 for the guy who right. does what he has. Just one extra swipe, and the sound of that is... Yeah. That's or, just one extra swipe. Or you sort of raise that dado set a hair higher. That would be more it. of a... That, yeah, that's... You know. Yeah. I, okay. This is really juvenile. Yeah, I would like everyone to notice that it is not me, <laughs> Matt Kinney, making those not, sounds. Not this week. It is Ed It's Prank. all John. What? It's Ed <laughs> taking it, Taking it to the gutter. All right, guys. We get lots of comments on our page in the iTunes store, and everybody knows uh, every week I like to read a few. Uh, so here is the roundup for this week. Chet Kloss wrote, a worthwhile podcast, very good content mixed with some funny banter. Experienced woodworkers answer questions and discuss relevant topics in the world of furniture making. That was obviously posted uh, to the wrong page. <laughs> that's right. Uh, A.M. Slagle wrote, a biweekly party for your ears. This is a great podcast for any woodworker, especially those of us that are fairly new to it. The boys at F... Excuse me? I, 
I prefer the men <laughs> at FW give all sorts of tips, tricks, and ideas. They also tell stories and offer insight on products and tools. Again, very useful. The best part, of course, is the humor, specifically Ed's humor. Yeah, no, st- <laughs> it does not say that. It does not say that. As a social studies teacher, I appreciate dry humor. But these guys, wow. These guys pull their jokes right out of the kiln. They're so dry. I love it. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's nice. Nice. That yeah. is a Yeah, that's good. Oof. Makes me feel good about myself. And Chris wrote, now this actually came into our inbox, um, the email inbox, but I, I thought there were some funny things here. Um, and maybe we'll, one of these is sort of a question. I'm going to pose it to each, each of you. Um, Hi, guys. Wanted to write and say what a great job you're doing. What I learned most from you all is the importance of being humble, that your sense of self-worth isn't determined by how good your furniture is. I've recently moved to a new town, and I don't have friends here yet, but I feel like I'm getting my friend dose from the podcast, and it really cheers me up. Where, where, where? <laughs> Anyways, a couple of comments I would be interested in getting your take on. One, no disrespect intended, but what does anyone does, but does anyone think it's a bit strange that James Krenov kept building the same cabinet with some slight modifications over and over? Did his home have one of these cabinets in each room? And what was his other furniture? Two, true woodworking greatness is achievable, no, is unachievable without a ponytail. Now, I'd like to address the Krenov comment. Okay. Is this sacrilegious to say? No. Okay. Did he really continue to build the same cabinet over Not and over? literally. Cabinet on stand? He made a lot of cabinets on stand, yes. Yeah, he's famous for that. Yeah, and some little wall cabinets, too. And famous for dowel joinery, too. Yep, yep. That was his thing. Yeah, dowel joinery. So those of you who poo-poo dowels, you might want to go talk to – well, you can't do that anymore. He's no longer with us. But you want to go consult a cabinet maker's notebook by James Cranoff. That's right. Yes. But I personally have – take umbrage at the second observation. True woodworking greatness is unachievable without a ponytail. Why do you take umbrage, Matt? Oh, please tell us. Because I cannot have a ponytail oh. without looking like the bald guy with the ponytail. <laughs> <laughs> like the guy in The Simpsons, the comic book guy? No, not, that's not the comic book. Oh, it is the yeah, guy. Yeah, 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 He's, he's like balding that. and he's got a ponytail and he lives yeah. in his mom's basement. So That guy weighs a lot less than I do. A lot less? <laughs> yeah. A lot a more? Oh, okay. Got it. <laughs> uh, anyhow, um, that about wraps it up this week for Shop Talk Live. We'll be back again in two weeks on March 21st for our next episode. In the meantime, show us a little amour by leaving a comment on iTunes, and by all means, click that five-star rating. Don't forget to send your questions and comments into shoptalk at taunton.com, T-A-U-N-T-O-N.com. You can catch the podcast via iTunes, stream it on your computer at shoptalklive.com, or catch us on iHeartRadio. Cheers, everybody. I've seen you, incidentally, at, at Goodwill, and you're constantly smelling the clothes. I don't know. <laughs> What's up with that? That's a really bizarre thing to say. <laughs> um, uh, because it's true. I do know. <laughs>